This morning's reading comes to us from Jeremiah 29, 4-14 out of the New International Version. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Mandy, and this is Brian. We are part of the formation team here at Imago, and we'll be helping with the new uh, teaching team as well. And we're excited to talk with you guys today. Yep, so um, the passage that we're going to talk about today is one that parts of it are probably very familiar to you. Jeremiah 29.11 gets quoted a lot. Um, and so, but we kind of stumbled across it in a weird way. So um, on Netflix, there is a movie that is both horrible and wonderful called A Week Away. So I don't know if you've seen it or not, but if you are... Um, Someone who was in a youth group in the 90s, this movie will resonate deeply with you. If words like the great adventure or dive in make your heart beat a little faster, um, this movie could be for you. So it's very, um, has a very high school musical vibe, but what they did is they took worse, uh, contemporary Christian music from the 90s, and that's the soundtrack of it. So again, all those songs I mentioned are part of the movie. So it's pretty cheesy. Um, for some reason, the choreography is especially bothersome to me. Like I watched a whole part like this, and I realized finally the reason it bothered me is it's not really choreography. It's the motions you do at vacation Bible school to every song you ever heard. So there's a lot of like, you know, got to be true. It's like, got to be true. You do like this a lot, and you know, you're just kind of stepping side to side and then making your hands do weird things. So there's a lot of that in there. So again, it was a kind of a, to be fair, a heckling sort of watching experience. But in the middle of this movie, there was a scene that really just jumped out and hit me, surprisingly. So, I don't know, I love when God shows up in weird places like that. So, in the middle, there's a scene where there, it's the campfire scene. So, again, if you've been to Christian camp, you know what this is like. Everyone's gathered around the campfire. Everyone's super emotional. They're all, you know, talking about what's true. And then they have this song number in the middle. And it's a very um, glee filled kind of mashup between two songs. So one song is Awesome God, which again is all about the power and glory of God. And again, it's a really great one for youth groups because we get all um, pumped up and excited about that. And so they're singing this song, and that's like the big melody that's going over the top. And then they start a counter melody. And so there's a, a more recent song called God Only Knows by, for King and Country. If you, you may have heard it on the radio. 
Um, and it's talking about how we have pain in our life that only God understands. And it kind of uses that phrase and plays with that a little bit. And the idea that, you know, we're, we're struggling and sometimes God is the only one who knows how deep that pain is and how awful that is. So you have all the, you know, super excited high schoolers singing Awesome God and then this other melody starts to weave underneath it. And honestly, I lost it. It was very emotional, like now. Um, it was very powerful and I, I was like, why does this bother me? This movie is dumb. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but what I realized was like, that tension is something that we face all the time believing in the goodness and the love and the power of God, but also seeing there is so much pain in our life that is very real. And it's not just little, oh, I can't find the parking spot, I need pain, or, you know, I was really hoping for this promotion, but I didn't get it. It's like life-changing, awful, life-and-death kind of pain. And holding both those things is very difficult. And so in that little moment, those two ideas combined in a really beautiful way. And then in that movie, they also use this verse. It's the only Bible verse they mention in the whole movie, and it's Jeremiah 29, 11. So I had been telling Mandy and Vicky about this movie and Jeff, and it's like, oh, you guys have got to watch this. It's crazy. So that was kind of in the background. And then... Yeah, so Brian had told us that we had to see this movie because it was hilarious and nostalgic and awful and cringy and all of those things. And so um, in our small group that week, we decided we would watch it just to see and I personally got incredibly excited when they started with Big House because, like, that was one yeah. of the ones we just belted out when I was in high school. And so it was very fun. But when that scene hit, like, yes, I was bawling. Like, it was very powerful. It reminded me of moments I've had. All of that stuff was great. But literally the next day I was driving to work. We knew we were preaching this Sunday. And so um, I had just been thinking about, like, just in general, you know, what what might the Spirit be wanting us to talk about or whatever. And I was listening to WCIC, and they did, like, the, a dramatic reading of that same verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. And for whatever reason, um, well, the Spirit, I think, uh, like, it just dropped in me in a totally different way than it had because it's been a bumper sticker theology verse for 15 years for me, Um and I started to really think about what does it actually mean for God to want to prosper and not to harm us? Like, what does it mean that we have a hope and a future? And so I wanted to dig into, like, the context and the language and stuff a little bit more. And I, I felt pretty strongly that that was what we should plant on. Um, but with that context in mind, and Brian is going to watch for responses um, if you're on Facebook. But I want to ask you guys, too. Where did you hear Jeremiah 29, 11? Like, what are your thoughts about that passage? Do you even give thoughts to that passage anymore? Did you hear it a lot in youth group? For me, I heard it, like, because every teenager was supposed to have, like, a multi-million person ministry when we got older. So God knows the plans he has for you. You know, like, it was meant to, like, infuse us with meaning and purpose. Um, where have where have you heard that verse? What do you think when you hear that verse? Does it hold any meaning for you anymore? Any thoughts? What in every graduation card? <laughs> okay, and it was the life verse at some point for almost everybody you knew. Okay. It's all over the walls at the mission you serve in Honduras. To try to summarize, Vicki um, said that at that mission, those people have no, no material hope. 
And so their future is uncertain. And in the face of, of actual people there trying to help them with their present, it, it is a powerful and meaningful passage for those people who are, who are experiencing that, that reality. So Libby shared that. <laughs> okay, so multiple people uh, had a pastor who um, would use that verse every single week as the benediction. So everybody knew it really well. He named his son Jeremiah. So for that pastor, it obviously held a lot of meaning. Kelly shared that um, when she heard it, she doesn't have the biblical, like, the church history with it. So she was just thinking soundbite, soundbite, soundbite. So, um, yeah, we'll be digging into it a little bit more um, today. So. Yeah. So, Becky, we're going to have you teach a class on this next round um, because that's all really important. And a lot of people who have grown up in church don't know those things. So, Becky is speaking to, like, the archaeological history and the reality that if um, the Jews hadn't been uh, displaced for that time, there are a lot of things that we have in the Bible that we wouldn't have because those were aspects of, of human history and creation that were gleaned from like the larger world views of like every other major community that had existed before them. They didn't have writing yet at the time. On a Facebook, Chris Schaffner um, wrote, with the amount of suffering I had been experiencing when I first heard this verse and the suffering I witnessed all around me, I honestly thought the promise in that verse was BS. And I think... That is a very honest and true reaction to. And that's where, there are a lot of people where this verse can just give you genuine hope, and I love that, and I want them to hold that. But I think that's what's the struggle with this verse, is it crashes into real life, and you can't live very long without experiencing real pain and seeing real pain around you. And then you have to struggle with, what do I do with this verse? What do I do with these promises? What do they actually mean? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Caitlin, okay, thank you. So Caitlin is sharing that she grew up understanding that verse as like kind of a claim it for yourself promise. And once she started to learn that it was like a specific promise spoken in a specific time to a specific group of people, she felt like she had the wool had been pulled over her eyes a little bit. Um, and, and frankly, I feel like we do that with a lot of scripture. The, the history I came from, you name and claim it anything that you want, regardless of context. I even had somebody tell me once, it doesn't matter what it meant to the original people. And, like, my soul died, and I signed up for college. So <laughs> I was just like, I can't, I can't with that. Um, I, that, that crosses the line. So anyway, yeah, very, very common experience, I think. JJ. Yeah, so JJ shared that he's heard it overused so much. It's kind of like live, laugh, love. Like there's a cliche kitschiness to it anymore. Um, and context is is very important. We'll be paying tribute to the king of context today a little bit. So yeah. anybody else? Nope. All right. Um, so just a little tiny bit of history. I won't, I won't babble on too much. Oh, babble on. Babylon. Nice. <laughs> Didn't do that on purpose. Um, Tip your waitress. We'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So basically what's happening in Jeremiah 29, 11, and you see that, that the big picture biblical story uh, for Israel is that there came a point where they broke into two sections. There were the northern ten tribes and then the southern part, which just ended up being kind of called Judah. And the northern ten tribes were eventually captured by Assyria, who was the ruling power of the day. And their approach was to, to pretty much slaughter the majority of the people that they would conquer. They would take the people who maybe had skills or, you know, money or things like that. But for the large part, they, they did a lot more, like, slaughtering stuff. They were very, like, warlike. But eventually Babylon is who conquered Assyria and therefore all the people they had conquered – and they were the ones who came in and ultimately uh, conquered Judah, which was, for all intents and purposes, all that was left of the nation of Israel on the planet. They did something a little different. They would take the conquered people and they would scatter them into all of the other places that they ruled, hoping basically to breed out nationalism. And so they would plant a few here, plant a few there, plant a few here. And when you look at books like... Um, Ruth and Esther, like you see some of those things happening in narrative, but for the most part, the prophets, um, that big chunk at the, at the end of what we call the Old Testament, those people were speaking to, to the nation of Israel in one of three phases. The first is the warning phase. God comes to them and says, I have called you to be a people, to be a light to the nations. Um, leaders, I've called you to show the people how to do that. You're messing it all up, either because you're greedy or because you're worshiping false gods and sacrificing your children to them or committing uh, human atrocities. There were there, things that, that God held against them were not, you missed, you know, point subsection 3AQ in the Old Testament or in the law. The things that God was bringing against them were you are destroying other people. You are flying in the face of what I called you to do. If that continues, I will allow those around you to, to conquer you. Because the reality is, Israel was never exactly like a mighty force. Any um, independence that they had, when we read it, appears to be because God was shielding them, right? God was their God, and he was helping them in battles and, and all of that stuff. And God basically says, I will allow the natural course of events to occur if you don't return back to the place and the, the calling that, that I put on you to begin with. The second phase is, all right, you're going into exile. It's not going to be good. Bad things are going to happen. Here's what I want you to hold on to in the middle of that. And the third phase was, okay, you're in exile. Um, the thing that I said was going to happen has happened. This isn't the end, though. If you'll return to me... And the idea of a remnant comes up a lot. There will be a remnant of you restored. And you can come back to the calling that I gave you. There's still hope that you can be everything I called you to be if you can learn what you're supposed to be learning from here. Disclaimer, I do not believe in the theology that God allows bad things to happen so that he can teach us a lesson or create something in us. We're going to talk about the nuances of that. But I want to say that very clearly up front. I don't believe that that's anything God ever communicated through scripture. So I just want to make sure I don't get misunderstood in that part because I think it's very important to hear. Um, so those are the three kind of phases that, that the prophets speak to. Jeremiah 29 is part of a message to the people after they've been in exile for some time. And he's telling them that there is still hope for the future. He's talking about this remnant and he's telling them how to live in exile in the meantime. 
this isn't the best for you. This isn't the life I had for you. This isn't what you would want for yourself. There is still a way to live with purpose in this time, and there is still a future ahead. So that's just a little bit of like the history context of, of where we are in Israel's story when these things are being spoken. So we notice that in this passage, it has a section that's kind of talking about the present. Like, how do you live right now? People of Israel, you're in captivity. You've been there for a while. How do you live in that present moment? And what's so interesting there is that God just calls them to work, to marry, to have a full life in this place. And he's calling them to kind of almost get back to business, sort of. But not in a way like just pretend your pain isn't there. It's not a dismissing of how hard it would have been for them to lose everything, to be taken from their home. It's not saying, oh, that doesn't really matter. Just go be productive. I just want to make sure that you're, you know, getting enough money and building up your nation again. But it's more of calling because he knows that they need that motion. They need that connection. They need that life. They need to be able to move on in the space that they're at. Even though it's not what they wanted, it's not what they hoped for, it's not what they asked for, it's very painful still, but there's still work to do in that space. And he kind of calls them to that. And so all this work about, you know, getting to work, marrying, finding finding brides for your sons and um, producing children, all those things, it's part of what the normal flow of life is. And they're also all things that connect us with other people. It was saying, don't be isolated in this time that hurts. Move into spaces with people, connect with people. And I love, too, that he talks specifically about the city around them. It's not just build up yourselves, Israel. Do good things for you, Israel, while you're there. He talks about prosper the city where you are. That just jumped out at me when I read this passage. I hadn't noticed that part before. It kind of gets lost in all the other promises in here. But he says, you know, in verse 7, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And again, it's not just, oh, you know, if they have more money, you'll have more money. It's not that. You're called to be among those people. It's that mission of light that Mandy referenced earlier. We're called to be light to the world no matter where we are, not just with the people that we think deserve it, not just with the people we think are good enough. And so, you know, these are people who had captured them, had done terrible things, and yet they were still called to do good things for those people in that moment. I think just for us, it, it ties connect, well, it connects so deeply with a mission directive that we have here at Imago, just the idea that we have to go beyond these walls. We have to go into the community where we are, the city, the country, to go to Honduras, all these other places where people need help. It can't just be about the people in this building. And even in this small place, I love that God is always calling us out to that, always calling us to be something more, to be beyond our own little group and our own little family. Um, really, that's what it does. It just it calls us out into the world. Another thing that was interesting in this time, you know, how do you live in this present, it was kind of a side note almost, like the idea of don't listen to the false prophets that are among you in that place. That kind of language for me was always used as them, like don't listen to them, which could be pretty much any group who wasn't sitting in this room at this time or wasn't part of our denomination or wasn't reading the right version of the Bible or whatever it was. There's always a them that we should not listen to. But what I notice here is that he's really calling us to listen to truth here. It doesn't, it just says listen, um, seeking the truth not what they're trying to tell you. And I love that he notices in there that don't listen to the dreams that you're encouraging them to dream. We love voices that echo what we want to hear. We find the news outlets that echo what we want to hear. We find the voices that tell us what we want to hear. It's so easy for us to circle ourselves in those spaces and insulate ourselves. And really, this is calling them to truth. Not so much 
looking at other ones suspiciously, but in yourself, looking for the, the truth. What is God really saying to you? And being willing to find it any place, not just in the places where you're comfortable, not just in those same old voices that you've listened to over and over again that have always told you things that made you feel good, being able to move beyond that into harder spaces. So once the prophet speaks to their present, he looks to their future. And this is where we see all of the promise verses. Jeremiah 29, 11 is in this context. Um, because the reality is that hope is a really hard thing to hold on to when your circumstances are dismal, right? Like, I know that's my experience. Maybe some of you have like a gift of faith that, that helps you to hold on to hope tangibly. Um, it is very difficult for, it, it seems very ethereal in, in the hardness to have hope that there is going to be a change. Um, and you can even think of that in the big picture. Like, it is very difficult to hold on to hope that our country can actually rid itself of the systemic racism and bigotry that is embedded into our core, right? Like, that's just the reality. The other reality is that we believe that we, that God is a God of miracles and that we are here to help bring the values of the kingdom here and that God will exponentially work through our efforts to bring about change that nobody thought could happen, right? Like we see that all the time. And so we, we have that tension of, of not being idiots, but also wanting to hold on to hope because we believe in a God that's bigger than our biggest imagination, so that's what's happening here. I, they're, they're exiled. They're living completely separated from their identity, from their culture, from their religion. The temple isn't there. So as far as everything they understand about their relationship with God, they're cut off because the, the sacrifices and the festivals and all of the things that they're supposed to be able to do aren't accessible to them. Um, it, they're barren. It's, it's bereft. But God is telling them there is still hope for your future. Um, and so then we get into this verse, uh, and I'm, I'm, this is the nerd section again, where I'm going to give you just a little bit of context onto some of the language. So the verse is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to bring you a hope and a future. A couple of key words in that. The first one is this idea of plans. Um, it's not so much like a schedule or agenda. It's these are the thoughts, these are the intentions, these are my hopes for you. And we won't get into a free will conversation today, but there is this idea that, that God's plans and intentions for them are contingent on them being the people that he's called and enabled them to be. Um, and then there's this idea of prosper, and don't let me run away with this. This is something that I think is super significant. The word is shalom. Um, and in the past, we actually talked a lot about fleshing this idea out. When you hear the word shalom or peace is the most standard translation, I always go to a lack of conflict, a lack of chaos. Peace means there's no battling, right? It means so much more than that. Shalom holds the idea of wholeness, of completely right relationship with yourself with everybody around you, with your community, with creation, like with the, the, the physical world, and with the divine. All of those things are woven together inextricably, and, and the idea of shalom is everything is right. Everything is as it should be. It's not an absence. It's a fullness, and that is huge. Like, hold on to that. Like, please make sure that you hear that. What God is saying is that the intention is that we have wholeness in every area, 
that is where we're headed. That is the ultimate promise that we have. It is a fullness, not an absence. We think so small. Scarcity gets so into our thinking with this stuff sometimes. And to think of this verse as just meaning to prosper as in, like, I'll have my material needs met and, like, enough money for vacation and to retire is those things are important, but they are so small compared to what is being spoken here. So please just take a moment at some point this week and sit with the idea of what would it look like in your life for true shalom to be experienced in every way that I I named. Um, And then the idea of harm, um, I mean, that one's a little more straightforward. It has to do with the idea of injury, pollutedness, um, something that has kind of been eroded or broken. But there is an intent behind it. It's not just like bad things won't happen to you. It's I won't cause them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that distinction. But God is promising like bad things will not come to you because I intend them to. Again, God isn't saying bad things are going to happen so I can teach you things or so I can make you into what you should be. Um, and then this idea of a hope in a future, the, the term that's used for hope is the idea, the literal word is a cord, like something that we hold on to. And the idea of a future is an ultimate end. So it's not necessarily talking even in our lifetime. It's talking about a big picture, like there is an ultimate place that we're headed toward, an ultimate experience or or existence that we're heading toward. Now, the Jewish people didn't really have much of a a concept of an afterlife. So for them, the idea of them being in right relationship with God really was reflected in their physical circumstances. I mean, you see that all through the Old Testament. That was their understanding because that's what they had at the time. Jesus comes in, turns that on his head, talks about the kingdom of God being already here, and that it's it's much more um, internal. It's much more um, emotional, relational than it is like material wealth. And again, when Jesus came, he was mostly talking to people who were poverty stricken and on the edges and marginalized and being abused by the people in power, right? So this idea of us having a hope and a future is is really the idea that there is something that that we have to hold on to as we journey toward an ultimate place that God has promised. Do you want to say more with the Shalom or... I, I mean, okay, no. great. So, um, Mandy already talked a little bit about the idea that the prosper is way more than what we think of. It's not prosperity. It's not financial prosperity. It's, it's something more. And harm is different than what we often think of too, because we, we tend to frame every harm in our lives as I didn't get what I want, or this bad thing happened to me and stopped what I wanted to move forward. It, it harmed me. Um, and this idea in here is a little different. Again, it's the idea of ruination. You know, of something that, that wrecks your life in some way, and in this idea, it, Jesus doesn't say that no bad things will happen to you, um, but we want that promise. And actually, that's the theme that comes out in that prayer in the night book that we're doing the class on. That's one of the things that really struck me as I read that book. She talks about we want a God who promises no bad things will happen to you. That's what we, what we long for. But God never makes that promise. And so you can't trust God to not let bad things happen to you, but you can trust him to be with you in that. Um, Jesus actually promises the exact opposite. So when he's talking about what life's going to be like in, in John 16, 32, and 33, he's talking to his disciples, and he's about to face um, his crucifixion on the cross. And he says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
I love how he does, like, it's almost like that little compliment sandwich. Like, oh, here's some good stuff. You're going to have really terrible things happen, but it's going to be fine. You know, he like, kind of sneaks that in the middle of there. But he promises the exact opposite. You are going to have hard things. You are going to have terrible things that happen in your life. That's how this life works. And so when we know that and the bad things happen, then we have to decide how do we respond to that. We can't um, be mad that God promised nothing would happen and it did. So, but we still are hurting. We're still upset. We're still angry. We're still devastated by these bad things. How do we respond with that? So that whole question, there's a big fancy word for it. It's called theodicy. And basically, it's just that question, how can you have a loving God and a world full of pain? What does that look like? And honestly, we could fill entire libraries of books that have been written about this conversation. It's been going on for years and years and years. Um, and I don't know that I have a satisfactory answer. And you certainly are not going to hear one today. Um, so, but there's, there's lots of different theories. One is one that Mandy referred to earlier, that everything is perfect and exact. God is a, a kind of a puppet master that's controlling everything. And when we feel like things are wrong, it's because we don't understand. We don't see the big picture. Our understanding is too limited, so we can't see what God's really doing. Now, the part of that that I agree with is my understanding is very limited. And I am totally on board with the idea that I don't understand what God is doing most of the time. And I get that. But when I look at how Jesus treated people when they were in pain and hurt, it doesn't match up with that view of God. When he encountered people, you know, that were blind, he didn't trip them so that they could learn to do better at avoiding people, right? When he met the woman at the well, he didn't just, like, stand off and hope that she would get her act together so she'd be good enough for him to talk to. He didn't treat people that way. He didn't put burdens in their life to help teach them a lesson to make them better. He was just loving them in that space. He was comforting them. He was being there with them in that space. So when we look at how Jesus was, that idea doesn't work really well. There are other theories like that God is actually limited and he kind of wound up the world like a clock and then he was helpless to do anything after that. So then he just has to unroll the way it does. Um, that doesn't seem to fit, honestly, with the way we see God in our lives and in so many other parts of the scriptures. But one idea is um, the idea where the free will part comes in. And, um, and for me, honestly, this is the one that makes the most sense to me. I honestly am holding it very open-handed because, again, there's so much about God that I don't totally understand. But that idea is that God wanted us to be able to be, to be free to choose. He knew that he could have made us all mindless robots that would always do the right thing, would always be, say nice words, would always bring a casserole to everyone every time we met them without even thinking. We'd just automatically be great all the time, right? He could have done that. But in this case, I feel like God chose to let us choose to be good and loving, knowing that a lot of times we would not choose to be good and loving. That a lot of times fear would overcome us and selfishness and all the things that we know are inside of us in some degree. And that there would be so many times when we would not choose the good thing. And even out in the world, there's just so many forces that make no sense at all. Disasters that happen, there's no reason that we can see why that would happen. But in all those things, what God promises is presence and love and staying with us in the middle of all those most horrendous things. I think the cross is a perfect picture of that, the most terrible event. If you judge um, terrible events by how innocent the person was and how terrible the thing that happened to them was, it's the most terrible event. But God was right there with Jesus in that. Even in that verse we talked about earlier when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, you're all going to take off. I will not be alone. The Father will still be with me in that moment of awfulness. And that's the part that God does promise. And I think there's still times when it's hard to see that. There's still times when you feel so alone. Everything hurts so much. And it doesn't feel like God is close. But what he promises is that he is. He's still there with us. She's still holding us close, loving us like a parent in the middle of those most terrible things. 
And that's part of where that avoiding harm comes from. It's not that the harm won't happen in your life, but when it does, you're not alone in that harm. You're not being ruined by that harm. You're not being polluted by that harm. You're still being held by God in the middle of all that. Um, so again, I hope that this distinction is clear. And if it's not, feel free to reach out to me if, if what I'm saying sounds like it uh, contradicts itself. But um, when we were talking about this idea of harm, uh, there were a couple of things that popped out to me. One of them was I was listening to an interview or a podcast by Elizabeth Gilbert recently who wrote um, Eat, Pray, Love and a couple of other books. And she's like a warrior for women right now um, in a lot of ways. Um, but she was talking about the creative process. And she it was just a little snippet um, in a larger context. But she was saying, you know, we're not promised success. We're not promised uh, inspiration. We're not in promised good things. We are promised suffering. Um, we're promised challenges. And she's talking kind of the universe promising those things. Like, those are guaranteed. Um, all of those good things we hope for, we work for, and we are so lucky when we get them. Um, so that was kind of the lighter side, you know, that in talking about the creative context, she was saying, like, the only thing that you know for sure that will happen is the stuff that you have to deal with, <laughs> not necessarily the good things. Um, and another thing that, that really, and I know I, I feel like I read from this book almost every time I speak, but Kalal Gibran is a poet that I adore. And um, he has a book called The Prophet. It's basically little snippets of wisdom about everything under the sun. And every word is just dripping with beauty and truth for me. I'm, poetry hits different people in different ways. Um, but there's a section, uh, it's said in the context of there's a man who uh, was shipwrecked on an island and he's been there for, you know, decades and now he, there's finally a ship coming to take him home. And so the people are coming out to him and saying, okay, before you leave, tell us everything we need to know about all of these things. And he talks about clothes and houses and, and justice and, and all of these other ideas. And there's a section where it says, and a woman spoke saying, tell us of pain. And he said, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. Jesus said the same thing about a seed needing to break open, right? And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life? Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart, even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields. And you would watch with serenity through the winter's of your grief. He's not saying that the pain has to happen. He's saying that it will. And our posture toward that pain can change the way we experience it. And you can see that even in little things like working out, right? For me, it's misery. Like it's all the pain and all of the suffering and I hate every minute of it. But there are t-shirts out there that say things like sweat is the, the weakness crying out of your body or whatever. Like there are people who have a totally different approach. They're just as uncomfortable. Like they're just as unhappy. But they've processed that differently. And I'm trying desperately to take on that mentality. But, but there's a difference in how that person and I experience the pain of physically working out. There are certain things that cause up, being up here 
for some of you, you would just like be a, a screaming goat that passed out, right? Like this is terrifying. It's one of the biggest phobias that people have. For whatever reason, it just doesn't do that for me or for Brian. And it doesn't mean that we're better in anything. A little bit does it for me, but yeah. It just means that we experience the discomfort differently, right? We experience the pain differently. And, and I love that between these three things, Elizabeth Gilbert in, in, in the context of creativity, the prophet in the context of, of beauty and transcendent truth, and our just everyday experiences, um, and that's not to say that there isn't pain that comes that is crushing no matter what. The loss of a child cannot comprehend. There, there is nothing about that that perspective will change. Um, so please know, like, there are still variations to this. There are still, um, tears, I guess, to, to this idea. But a lot of the things that we call harm or that we call suffering, perspective can help with and hope can also help with. And I want to be clear that for me, the idea of hope, especially as a Jesus follower, is 100% hinged on my belief that God is a redemptive God. So you can have a pile of trash in your house, right? And that, that horrible thing that happened or just that bad thing that happened, you can spray paint it gold and throw some glitter on it and call it, you know, God's purpose for your life or whatever, and it's going to decay and smell and infiltrate every good thing in your home. Or you can take it outside. You can add some, some worms or however composting works. You can mix it into the earth, and you can allow it to actually be what helps something else grow up really beautifully and well, but it starts by calling it what it is. If you're experiencing harm, you don't have to say, oh, well, since God wouldn't cause me harm, then it's not harm. It is harm. And if you call it what it is, you can allow it to become something different, but it starts by owning that what you're experiencing doesn't need to stay in the house, and you can't make it pretty enough for it to belong there. And part of the beauty of that redemptive act that God does is that we get to be a part of that. It's baked into all of us. That's part of, I, I believe, it's part of our, the way we reflect the image of God is that we get to be a part of redemption with ourselves, with other people, and that will look a hundred million different ways. And that's something, you know, for each of us to look at the, the pain around us, what can we do with that? It's not going up to someone who has had horrible trauma and then trying to explain theodicy to them. It's not trying to give them really quick pat answers that will make them feel better. But it is looking at what can I do to help. And sometimes it's just sitting and not saying a word. That has been my experience. Like some of the um, best times have been people just like sat and just like, I don't know what to say. I, don't, I can't fix this. I'm just going to sit with you in this really bad place. And that means all the world. And sometimes it is something you can take action and you can relieve suffering. And we're always called to do that. But we, we are, um, as part of the way we reflect God, and also we do that together as a community. That's the other part that's so beautiful. As a community, we are redemptive. We're a redemptive force for each other, again, for the community, for the world around us. Um, building each other up and helping us do that. That was really the power of that, you know, silly scene in A Week Away. It was holding both those things, again. The idea of God's work that is moving all the time and we could be a part of it and acknowledging that things really hurt, deeply, deeply hurt, and that both those things can coexist and they can make each other better and stronger um, just by feeding off each other. And I think that a part of that ties into the last little bit here, um, the idea of a hope and a future, that idea of that cord. At the end of the day, we're all holding on to the same one, right? 
like we're all, you know, holding at different places or, you know, we're just by nature of the fact that we're all in different places spiritually, like we're all holding onto that cord in different spaces. But for those that are closest to us, if somebody trips, somebody falls, somebody just gets weak, you can feel the tug as they start to release, right? And that's where we can reach out. Maybe I've seen too many action movies, but this is where we can reach out. And you can grab the hand of the person who doesn't have the strength, and you can keep them connected to that cord until they're strong enough to reach up and grab it again on their own. That's a huge part of what it means to be a faith community, is we are the people who are closest to each other holding on to that cord. And all the while, we know that there are people up ahead. We know that there are people behind, not as far as like levels of maturity, just location. And so we have those connections to every single person who's holding on to that cord. Like there's that little uh, cliche out there that's really great. Be nice to everybody you run in today because you don't know what battles they're facing. Like it, it kind of comes down to that idea that every person we're connected to because we're all holding on to that cord. We're all waiting for that 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 future that is promised. And as as Jesus believers, Revelation twenty one twenty two, that is the ultimate hope. Like twenty some years later, I still get emotional thinking about the idea that there's going to come a day when every one of us has nothing between us. Every injury, every struggle, every misunderstanding, everything we've ever done can be cleansed understood and let go and we just experience unity with each other all of those inner battles that we experience the shame the self-hatred the questioning the doubting we will see ourselves as we are seen and we will know that it is love because we're seeing ourselves through the eyes of the one who created us and who has ultimate compassion for all of the ways that that shell has built up around us because we were just trying to survive and we didn't know yet, we couldn't see yet, but there's a promise that we will, that the atrocities that we've committed against this earth will be made right. It does not mean we do not need to participate in that being made right now, but that there will come a day when there will be a new earth and a new heaven and God will be among us. It's not a myth and it's not a fiction and it is the thing that keeps me here week after week and day after day with you, with God, following Jesus the best that I can. And that's what each one of us has to hold on to. And I want every one of you to walk out of here knowing that you are loved and seen and God has ultimate compassion on you and on our community and in all of the ways that we may fail each other and ourselves, there will come a day when all of our weakness is filled in with the strength of God. And all of those gaps are closed because of God's gracious compassion toward all of us, not because we finally earned it not because we were finally good enough. We always want to strive to continue to reflect the image of God into the world in the best and most unpolluted way that we can. That's the whole purpose of this journey in so many ways. But we will never arrive there, right? And so we have to look at each other with compassion and and try to see the same grace and acceptance that God sees for each other and for ourselves and do better as we learn better, knowing that it will always be dependent on the redemption of God to move into those spaces where we failed, where others have failed. So we figured that the uh, best way to give you a final 
picture of this is to think about our very favorite TV show, Schitt's Creek. Um, if you've watched Schitt's Creek, um, then you know what we're talking about. If you haven't, I will try to still like you, but it'll be very difficult. But I will try to overcome that. Um, but that idea of redemption is such a theme in that show. And what makes that show so powerful is when you first meet these characters, they're terrible and they're awful. And they've gone through really awful things. Like they're not mean for no reason. They've lost everything. They've had all these um, terrible things that have happened. And they're in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And I will, like, they're real bad. Like, yeah. my fiance loved the show. And I watched parts of the first season with her. And I was like, never. I never want to see this show. These are all horrible humans. <laughs> They're never going to get better. I hate all of them. I don't want to watch it. And eventually she convinced me to start like halfway through season two, mm -hmm. and it changed. Yeah, and then what you see as it progresses is just bits of change all the way through, and they actually are allowed to grow and change, and those hard things that happen start to be redeemed in a beautiful way. And by the end, you see these acts of goodness and selflessness and beauty that mean so much more now because, uh, you know, the hurt that happened before. You see how that changes. It's fiction, and it's fun. It's also what we get called into. We get to be a part of our own story like that, where redemption happens in the middle of our biggest hurt. And we get to see that together and experience that together. So that's what we just want to encourage you with and call you into today, is just to remember that we are in this together. We're holding the same cord, and God's redemptive work is happening all the time through us. So you might have a coffee mug that says hope in the future, but more than that, you've got a cord that holds us together in love.